0: Well, take with me your copy of the Word of God and open up to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one within arm's reach. And you would turn to page 1014 for this morning's text. Well, holiness, it seems, is all the rage today. Just not by that name. Holiness is in, moral relativism is out. Back in the 90s, when I grew up, it was an exchange from virtue to values. A movement from virtue, as we've talked about, was a movement from ethics grounded in reality and truth that doesn't move. And then we can debate about what that truth that doesn't move is, but ethics that are moored to something a move from virtues to values. Values, this idea that different people and different groups and a company may value this or value value that. It's kind of virtues unmoored from a, found, a foundation and a movement from objective ethics to subjective values. Well, the new holiness, we might call it, is coercive, it is judgmental, and it drives us with guilt. Is Christianity just one more of those worldly purity cultures? Is it just one more coercive, judgmental, guilt-driven machine? Well, let's read together a passage about holiness this morning. We'll start in verse 13 of First Peter chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who calls you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Well, yesterday afternoon, Christy and I got a text from uh, a dear family across the neighborhood whom we love and enjoy and family friends of ours, and uh, this mom and friend of Christy was asking Christy if our son Carson, 13 years old, note that, uh, could go to a smash house. They were going to take their son to a smash house uh, where for a number of dollars you can pay for five minutes to destroy a vehicle or some other... No longer needed uh, entity, and there was I, my, my son's description of what happened. I didn't realize that it was five minutes of time at first. It sounded like an hour and a half or a full day of enjoyment. But really, it was about five minutes A movement from a sledgehammer to a bat from the windshield to the rearview mirror, and it, and it kept going. And uh, other people apparently had been cycling in and out. There's something to say for just taking an old car to task like that. And we talked about the merits of venting your anger and whether or not this is a valuable way of dealing with other things going on. But for a 13-year-old, I think it's just fine. (laughs) There's another thing you can do with a car, and that is to restore it. Massive hoard of 170 classic cars unearthed in London warehouse was the headline this week. Apparently, a a businessman in London had been collecting classic cars and driving them right into this warehouse for the last 10 years, and many of them were in bad need of help. And as it happens, this warehouse will, for one reason or another, it needs to be demolished. He has nowhere to put 170 classic cars. He must have been running a good business to be able to afford them and the space to put them in. And so now he is auctioning them off well some of you may have restored a classic car before and there's all kinds of things to go into that including beautifying the exterior not just making the thing work but making the thing beautiful well that is something like what God is about doing in his people that is something about what God is doing in salvation He is calling us to himself and he is about beautifying us so that we are like he is holy. We are not left to our futile ways. We're not left merely to destruction for neglect, but we are carefully cared for and beautified by our Lord The words, be holy as I am holy, is the sound of God working a precious restoration project in the world. And if you hear anything other than that, that is only your sinful projections from your own heart unto God. Be holy as I am holy is good news that flows from the good news of the gospel. Yes, this restoration project about which God is conducting, this call to holiness, this call to purity of thought, action, and deed is not a coercive affair. We are compelled into this. It is not a matter of mere behavior, but of belonging, of becoming and of beauty. As we meditated on the screen on our way to the start of the service, we are called to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Isn't that a beautiful expression? In preparing this service, I locked onto that first and thought we must meditate on that on our way in to this morning's service. Well, this morning's passage is a passage About holiness. We've got ourselves an Old Testament quote, a famous one. It's sitting there right in the middle of the passage. It's a passage that could cut three ways. Set your hope fully on the grace. Do not be conformed and conduct yourself with fear. We've got three imperatives, so we'll cut it three ways to consider the mindset of holiness, the measure for holiness, and the motive for holiness holiness. So first, the mindset. Not expressed in a point that sounds like that's where we're going, but it is. We'll discuss first the hole in our holiness in verse 13. And I would put to you of one kind or another, there is a hole in your holiness. And we'll address one of the common holes in our holiness as we reflect on this first verse. Peter begins... Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the first thing you and I would generally say to somebody that we were concerned to call to holiness. Now, this morning in this section, I want to make a proper biblical connection between hope and holiness. This is the hole in our holiness is a missing biblical connection between hope and between holiness. One of my jobs in our home is to replace light fixtures. And I've learned how to do it. And you can take these things down off the ceiling and there's all kinds of little hooks and Why are things to deal with? And some of you know much more about this than I do, but I have learned that you turn the power off. Thanks, Christy, for reminding me to do that last time I was on a ladder. You turn the power off and you disconnect these things carefully and you connect them carefully. If you don't connect them the right way, well, I suppose one outcome isn't so bad. The wrong light switch works for the wrong thing and you can live with it like we are living with it in our family room right now. (laughs) It might also be the case that it just won't work. It just won't work. It might also be the case that if you make the connection wrong that uh, you'd have trouble. It could be dangerous to make the wrong connections, to miss the grounding connection or another. Oh, so it is here in the Bible when we make the wrong kinds of connections or fail to make a connection between two things. It might be that we just leave a command without any power. And that's discouraging, spending your whole life flipping the switch that says holiness and there's just nothing there. Or we make the wrong kind of connection between holiness and perhaps God's judgment alone, apart from his grace and this hope, in which case we have something dangerous that follows. Not only does it not work, but it can give us trouble. It can light your whole life on fire if you get these things Get these things wrong. Now, before we get into the proper connection between hope and holiness, let's talk just definitions at a very simple level. What is this hope on which we are to set our hope? The grace on which we are to set our hope. Set your hope fully on the grace. What is this this hope? Well, this ties us back to the last three sermons, verses three through 12. You remember our one sentence. He says that you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he speaks about our future in Christ, and he speaks about our present suffering as preparing us for that day. And he puts all of this in context of God's great plan of salvation recorded in the scriptures. Well, and here in verse 13, he says, Therefore, I was engaging with somebody this week over this, and his first question about this whole passage was, "Right." What is the therefore, therefore? It's a good Bible study question. This paragraph is not in isolation. That little word hooks us into the sentence before. The last three weeks we've spent on the hope that we have been given. To which we have been born again. A living hope. So that's what the therefore is there for. And that's the kind of hope we're talking about. It's forward-looking hope. It's brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is no hope We should say this at the head of the sermon. There is no hope for sinners, for humans on this earth facing death apart from Jesus Christ. There is no hope. There's no hope for me, no hope for any of us. There's no hope for you apart from the revelation of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead. I was speaking with a dear friend. Uh, who many years ago left the faith. I was speaking with him this last week. We're opening things back up, and I'm praying for him. Um, He's written plenty of papers on the Bible and theology and knows anything I might tell him, but he's drifted and he's forgotten, and he has left and he has stopped believing. We're sharing what we're reading and learning, and he's listening to podcasts and reading a book. One book he's reading about is about that thing at the bottom of every person that motivates their whole life and suggests it's the fear of death. And talked about the fear of death for about 10 minutes. And I just thought, you used to have an answer to that. There is no way this book, in this investigative season of his, is leading him to a satisfying answer. No, but we have a satisfying answer here. So I'll pray that my friend comes back to it. And I think. I think he might, I'll sir sure pray that way and the Lord can do it. But my word to you, if you're in Christ, is that you have hope because Jesus is raised from the dead and none apart from that. And if you're not in Christ and you've left him and you come for one reason or another, I remind you of what you have heard before and that is that there is hope in Christ and there is hope nowhere else. Hope, Therefore, holiness, what is holiness? Well, we'll be simple about this for the moment. The passage will fill it out for us a bit. Indeed, the rest of the book of 1 Peter will fill this out for us. So we'll let the book and the series do this in time. But in a sentence, how about this? Holiness is being set apart by God for God and set apart like God to be like God holiness means to be set apart God himself is holy he has made us we are like him in some ways the creation and everything that he made reflects him and his glory and his attributes but he stands apart from his creation over it he is in it but not as one who is the creation. God is set apart. He is in that way holy. This also refers to his utter purity. There is no wicked or evil thought or malice in his heart. He is the point of reference for every good thing. He is pure. And so when we are set apart made holy, Or at least when we respond to a command to be holy, as he's holy, we are called to be in this way, like God. And as I said, the book will fill out all that that means in a bit this morning in this passage. We go wrong in our connection between holiness and hope in a few ways to meditate on this for a bit. Some may pursue hope without holiness or preach hope without holiness. We think that hope makes holiness unimportant. We preach hope, but we are afraid to preach holiness, lest our hope be in our minds diminished or misunderstood. We're afraid that holiness, we're afraid that commands will undermine our hope. We're afraid that calls to purity and life will undermine the purity and the potency of our hope. And you may resonate with this. Big on hope, not so much an emphasis on holiness. And you may even be dogged about that. And it may be that you've grown up in a home or in a church or under preaching that was really, really, really big on rules and not really big on happiness. So there's a kind of an equation between rules and cruelty. Rules are cruel. God is cruel. And he's a terrifying judge and you had better obey him, be holy. And so when you find the hope of the gospel, you are so thrilled. And then you see it everywhere in the Bible, but you're a little scared and a little touchy on commands. And sometimes you talk yourself out of them when you see them on the page or you just keep reading. Another way we go wrong in the connection between hope and holiness is to pursue or to preach holiness without hope. And we're afraid that preaching hope with holiness will make holiness undesirable. We won't pursue it. We won't think it's important. And so we see that people are called to holiness, but we don't mention hope lest they relax, lest they not think that this is important. And we're afraid that hope will undermine holiness. And in this case, Maybe you've grown up in a church or a family or under preaching that was really, really, really big on grace and feeling good and being hopeful, but not really big on being obedient. And so perhaps you saw a revolving door in a church growing up of those who would come to Christ and be excited about grace and then disappear and live according to the course of the world as though nothing had happened One error leads to licentiousness and the other to legalism. Getting these connections wrong is explosive and dangerous. No, we need both. And we need not be afraid of holding both out. Peter's not afraid of holding both out. An emphatic, bold command to be holy with the authority of the Old Testament underneath it and hope all over. Look at this command right here in the middle. You shall be holy for I am holy. Oh, and there's the word conduct. Well, we don't like that word. You be holy. Oh, that's internal. That's, he's talking about the, the heart and all your conduct. Wait a second. And this is where your mind starts getting to work about how God is still only cares about your heart. He cares about your heart. And he cares about your conduct. And those things aren't in contradiction. Remember? Beautifying the car and restoration. Don't buy the false dichotomy. Buy what Peter's giving you right here. Now, the book itself will speak about conduct over And again, so we see it in verse 15, verse 17. If you call on him his father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves in a certain way. And in verse 18, you were ransomed from your futile ways. So bad, wrong conduct. And in 2 verse 12 in this very book, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see with their eyes something outside, good deeds, and glorify God on the day of visitation. Chapter three, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some don't obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your your respectful and pure conduct, And verse 16 of chapter 3, another accent on this theme. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior, oh, there's the word behavior. Some of you are scared of that word. Christianity isn't about behavior. Now, some of you only care about that word. It's all about behavior. And those other people are responding to you and they've got something Right? But on your extremes, neither of you have the gospel in its fullness. When they revile your good behavior in Christ, they may be put to shame. So there's an accent in this book on conduct, on holy conduct. Peter is compelling us now to conduct ourselves in a certain way, to be like God in our thoughts and deeds and actions. Actions and attitudes, yes, internal and external. So that's right in the middle of the passage. But this command, which is in the middle of the passage, is sandwiched, bookended, pick your image, by hope. So look at verse 13. Preparing your minds for action, set your hope fully on the grace. And then the passage ends again, verse 21. Speaking of Christ, God who raised Christ from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God so that there is no hope for holiness apart from hope. So make sure there's a good connection. And don't be afraid of one and don't be afraid of the other. Let me drive this home even more. You'll see here in the first, pa- first chapter to this point of Peter. Watch the theme of hope in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. He fills us up with hope. And then at the end of verse 31, 21, as we've read, so that your faith and hope are, present tense, in God. So we have two indications that you have hope. Hope. And God has given you hope that you actually have. Right now, you don't see Christ, but you believe in him and you love him. You have hope. Be encouraged in all the hope that you have. Well, then right here in verse 13, the grammar changes. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Now, a command. Set your hope fully on the, on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. So here's a command to set your hope fully on the grace of God. Make a proper connection between hope and holiness. The first thing you do in pursuing holiness or compelling anyone else to pursue holiness or in praying for somebody who doesn't know Christ that they may one day be holy in their conduct is hope. Hope and holiness are not so much like two peas in a pod. It's more like the pod and the peas. You see? They're not two separate things that sit next to each other. They're two things related in a very particular way. Because I hate peas. A better and more compelling and hopefully memorable image. Think of it this way, now that we've made the connection. Holiness is the beam of hope. Holiness is the ray. It's the ray of hope in the heart. Holy conduct is the sunbeam of the light that God has borne in you and in our church, Christian. So there's no problem, no problem whatsoever with calling you to holiness this morning. It's not from a place of pride. It's not from a place of rigid, unhappy frustration. It's from a place personally and for us and and from Peter on the page of a full heart with the grace and hope of God. And if you think about it, when we think about application in preaching or application in our Christian lives, Sometimes we're looking for very concrete things and it's okay to press the text all the way down to, the, to what you do when you go home today as long as we don't say, thus saith the Lord. We can get specific with ourselves. I may give examples of things from time to time. But taking our cues from this very letter, just consider that this passage itself and this simple call to be holy and the subsequent calls to conduct ourselves in a particular way throughout the rest of the book Are Peter applying the gospel of living hope for the Christian? And so what we're about here at Heritage is filling ourselves up with hope so that we might not be coerced but compelled to apply that hope into our relationships and our roles and our inner and outer life in holy conduct. Well, Peter has declared some things. He's declared the hope of the living hope that is ours in the gospel. And in this passage, he moves to make an exhortation. Remember at the end of the book, he says, I've declared and I've exhorted, I've declared these things and I've exhorted you. Well, he's declared some things and now he is exhorting us today. And what we find here at the head of verse 13 is a certain mindset that is required. So the command, set your hope fully on the grace of God, is is something that requires effort. And what we've been doing the last few weeks and reflecting on our hope in Christ is we've been putting in the effort, the effort that's needed, the effort that we'll have to return to, mental, even intellectual, internal effort in order to apprehend, and to set our minds to the grace of God. He says, preparing your minds for action. A mind set to action is necessary for setting our hope on grace, which is necessary for holiness. A mind set to action. You think of Peter, who was an act first, think second kind of guy. He's learned some lessons, and he's saying now, think first. Set your mind to action, which tells us that this matter of holiness in the, the Christian life is not something that is automatic. It doesn't happen in a really relaxed and chill, not too serious kind of Christian way. It doesn't happen from the mind and the heart that is dull to the things of God and the severity of sin set your mind to action. It's also a mind set on the future, as we've noticed. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in the future at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've talked about how our salvation isn't just a past event where we became saved, but it's an ongoing thing as God is beautifying us and And one day we will be fully restored and there won't be any rust or trouble or clanks or dents. And that'll be a great day. And one of the ways that we get ourselves through our trials in this age and one of the ways that we stay with the work of personal holiness is by setting our mind not on the moment with all its temptations, but on the future. And so one of the ways to fight temptation to abandon this pursuit of holiness is not to focus on the sin and the temptation itself, although that is part of it, study yourself and your sins so that you won't be outsmarted by your own self. But it is to fix your mind and your heart and to fill your imagination with the things ahead and the things above. There is a certain mindset that is required for all that he's calling us to. And when your mind is set to action and when your mind is set to the future, two things make no sense whatsoever. Hope without holiness makes no sense whatsoever. If we look to the future to the day when Jesus comes because we are eager for the day when we will be rescued from sin in this world, and we're thankful to God for forgiveness from the penalty of our sin, then why wouldn't we want a foretaste of it now? Oh, we will wrestle with temptation. I'm not suggesting any of us are here without having sinned today or having sinned today, excuse me, and therefore you're not in, in the faith. I'm suggesting that a basic hunger in the heart that can respond to the command be holy is evidence that you have been set apart by God that you know him hope without holiness makes no sense because your hope is being saved from sin and so there's a a taste of heaven that you long for and obedience to Jesus gives us that foretaste another thing that doesn't make sense is holiness without hope for there is no possible way you can obey God from faith apart from hope So much work can be done by making the right kind of connections. There is a hole in our holiness, and hopefully we've patched a bit of it today. Now, our second point concerning holiness. I say to you, friends, it's about conformity. Holiness is about conformity. And you're thinking, no, that's the wrong way to talk about holiness, Well, yes and no. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. It's all about what you are conformed and being conformed to. Everyone is conformed to something. It's all about what that something is. And here, Peter begins, he moves into his exhortation With what not to be conformed to and then a what to be conformed to. Verse 14, what not to be conformed to. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's how he speaks about the way of life that we pursue apart from Christ. It's the way of life any of us pursue apart from Christ. And it may look one of a hundred different ways. But it is born in ignorance, it is our former ways, and it is born of passions, unrestrained in the heart, sinful passions. 1 Thessalonians 4, 2 through 5 came to mind for me this week. I heard a sermon on this passage in uh, a sermon on pursuing godliness with our sexuality many years ago, and this has stuck with me. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, be holy in your conduct with your body. Christian friends, Abstain from sexual immorality that each one of you may know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. And what is it about them who do not know God, who do not know God? For God has not called us for impurity, but he has called us to himself in holiness. Verse seven. So that's the thing. There is an ignorance of God. What is this ignorance? It's an ignorance of God and his beauty and his love and his majesty and his sheer goodness. Romans chapter one, a crucial letter. If you're new to the Bible, that would be a good place to turn just to read a chapter in the Bible today or this week. Speaks of our sin. We've suppressed the truth about God and unrighteousness. Even our ignorance of God is actually a moral ignorance, a culpable ignorance. He says here, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance christian who have your eyes open so that you can see the beauty of truth and you are aware that god is now restoring you to something beautiful and you know what you're made for and it's not the smash house you came from the smash house you're his project now don't return to the smash house don't go there don't eye the sledgehammer what are you thinking don't eye the bat Don't eye those 13-year-olds coming in with the bats. It wasn't really fun. It didn't lead anywhere fun. You were not in that old time, in your former way, in your former ignorance, put to your purpose as a human. You were serving yourself. You had a hard heart toward God. God. No, but God has redeemed you and he is restoring you, so do not return and don't conform yourself to those ways, however familiar they were and are to you still. Be conformed instead to Christ. Well, there's another command here. I'll reach ahead a little bit in the passage because it's closely related. In verse 18, he speaks of conducting ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, knowing... That you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Maybe that's an accent on the internal. Now the external. Do not be conformed to the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. The feudal ways. In Romans chapter 1, which I referenced a moment ago. That same word is used. That's a good word. Verse 21, although they knew God, they speaking of every human being. It doesn't matter your point on the intersectional spectrum. It doesn't matter your background. Every human being condemned under sin, every human being born in Adam knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That is the story of the human race of which we are all born apart. Futile in their thinking And their foolish hearts were darkened. And claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Leave us alone and we make gods of anything. We'll bow down and worship a block of wood. So don't be conformed to the ways handed down from your forefathers. And every culture and every society has its ways. And not all the ways are bad. Some are morally neutral, but every society and culture that is not rooted and peered to the bedrock truth of the living God manifests ways that ultimately lead to death. There is no hope, ultimate hope in any society, no matter how sound its ways are, if it is not submitted to the rule of Christ. And one day we will see a society that way when Jesus comes. Every society and culture has its its ways to bring coherence and to bring stability. In America, we can be grateful for good truth embedded in our earliest documents. I'm speaking now to those that I'm commanding not to be conformed to the American way. Be thankful for all that it means to live here in America insofar as the founding principles of our own nation reflected the truth of the word of God and God as he is, but it is not a divinely inspired document. Neither were its writers as courageous as they were, were great sinners in many ways. And we have traded for sin, for sin, for sin in our own great nation. From slavery in one era to abortion in the next. We are, as a nation, not a God fearing people, but a God hating people. We're a murderous people. We're a cruel people. We're a people merely described on the page of the Bible in Romans chapter 1 that have traded the glory of God for the glory of man. And sometimes we get it better than others. And we can always be thankful and pray for peace and security in our time and place and for our governing authorities and their integrity uh, with their roles and all of that. But our hope is in Jesus. And so don't be conformed to your former passions from your ignorance and don't be conformed to the ways of your forefathers handed down, even in this great place in which we find ourselves. Wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Don't be conformed to the American way. Be conformed to Christ and to God and his holiness. We are a people under the rule and reign of a king that we do not see who is coming. And his kingdom is sure and forever forever. A few more reflections on this American culture bit. Being not conformed to American culture would be not finding your life and your morality inside yourself, not seeking in this life your true self, or what's been called therapeutic acceptance. Acceptance. There is a a pastor in Portland who has done a very fine job reflecting on some of these things for us. He's got a book on conversion and a chapter, Holy Not Healed, that our staff read recently. I just want to read a portion of this for you. I think he did a good job of outlining our vulnerability as Americans in our day. He spoke of Phil Donahue and Oprah, and I remember the two of them on the TV in the 80s. Kids, they're long gone, not totally, they're around, but but their legacy is with us. And what they started back then reflected what was happening in America and a move from a moral people to a therapeutic people as a nation. He writes, we were moving from a moral to a therapeutic worldview. And these shows reflected that fact and led the way. The therapeutic attitude is the conviction that our great need as individuals is to learn to love and accept ourselves to get comfortable in our own skin And when we look for validation from others, all sorts of personal and social maladies result. Eating disorders, codependent relationships, drug abuse, abusive marriages, and the list is endless. This is where the shows like Donahue's came in from that day. They invited guests to confess behavior that would ordinarily be considered deviant. But the purpose of these on-air confessions was not to obtain forgiveness and absolution, The purpose was to facilitate acceptance, acceptance by the guest himself and usually the studio audience. A guest's coming out demonstrated radical self-acceptance, yet the work of these group therapy sessions traveled beyond the television studios into living rooms of everyone watching. The extremes displayed on Donahue and Oprah gave us permission to throw off shame and guilt and finally begin to love ourselves. And he says this, that for many Christians today, that's the good news of Christianity. Jesus fills the void in our hearts. He brings healing to our brokenness, not holiness to our sin. So beware, Christian, in America today that the atmosphere we are breathing is one that values the self and self-acceptance above all things. Beware of following, falling in line seeking cultural acceptance. One seeks to feel good about oneself and one seeks that everyone feel good about me and both distort and contort the word of God and Christianity in their own unique way. Jay Leno said this last week, either you're getting on with the times or you die. We'll be careful about being tempted to get on with the times. We, do not, we live in a place that is more and not less hospitable to Christianity than many other places in the world, but be careful about the slow change that's happening about us. Talk to your friends in the room from California. Not every state is the same. And good, good people are staying there and some good people are moving here. And uh, they can help us to know how to pray in the days ahead. Well, enough on that. He tells us what not to do Crucially now, what to do. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, be holy as I am holy. No, the Christian, we do not pursue our true selves to find ourselves, we pursue the one true and living God in order to know ourselves and him truly. And in order to be transformed from the self we are into the image of Christ who we were made to reflect. And this command here, you be holy as I am holy, was given to the ancient Israel at Sinai. We find it in the book of Leviticus. It is a quote from the Old Testament. And it's not a command that they were able to keep because they didn't have the spirit of God. Their hearts were as stone. But as Peter writes to us, we're able to keep it. And why? Because we have been born again to a living hope. And you have been given a heart of flesh and you have been made a person that can read that command and obey. The connection has been made between you and God so that you are able to obey the command to be holy as I am holy. And one day perfectly when Jesus is perfectly revealed. Set apart by God for God to be like God. Now let's move on to the motive. the Mindset, the measure, and now the motive. Fear is a big part of it. I wasn't supposed to say that either. Fear is a big part of being holy. Now am I about to undermine everything I've just said? No, I'm not. Verse 17 through 21. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here it is conduct yourselves with fear. That's the main command throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Friends, we find here three motivations from the Apostle Peter for holiness. He knows we need these motivations because he knows our vulnerabilities. We are tempted to obey this command to be holy for I am holy from a sense of alienation and a longing to know God when we already know him. We're tempted to obey it from or neglect it from presumption. We may be tempted even to obey it from guilt or to give up on the command to be holy because of guilt and because of shame. And all of this is addressed in such simple and beautiful terms as he preaches to us now the motives for our obedience to God and for holy conduct. In the first place, friend, be holy as God is holy because God is your father. If you call on him as father who judges impartially, if you call on him as father, did you notice verse 14? As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You belong to God. And you don't just belong to him, you belong to God who is your father and you are to him as a child, a son. It is that kind of belonging. And you need to be reminded of that all the time. As we talk about our conduct and you think about your conduct last night and this week and what's been going on in your mind and how you acted in contradiction with your faith in some profound ways this year, you need to remember if you're to get back on the wagon, that's not a biblical image, maybe not a great even way to talk. If you're to repent, there you go. If you're to repent, you need to come to God as father and know yourself as his child. Peter wants that in your your noggin fixed and sure. If you call on him as father, it's an if. He wants you to ponder the question, but he's hopeful and even sure the answer is yes. But it does call us to ask ourselves, is God father for me? And if you've been sitting here frustrated that you're being called to holiness yet one more time in your life in church, this hope stuff is super encouraging or it's supposed to be, but it's not working for you. It may simply be that you are not a child of the heavenly father who is God and this isn't a relationship thing for you at all. You're still alienated from him. And as you've tried to be obedient, you've obeyed in order to earn his pleasure and there's no hope for that because you're a sinner. No, we obey and we seek His holiness and to obey in our conduct from a position of acceptance as children of a gracious Father. So be motivated by your relationship with God, not by rules without a relationship, but by your relationship. The second motivator addresses the problem of presumption. We may think that the fatherhood of God and our position as his children and his family could lead us to be presumptuous and to let our guard down and Peter doesn't let that happen. God is not only father but judge and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds and what do we make of this? Well, God is a righteous judge. He sees all of our sin perfectly And a son who knows his full acceptance by his father doesn't act in a certain way when his dad is looking as he does even as a sinner when his dad is not. There's something sort of terrifying even about a loving father who looks on our sin. Be properly, biblically, fearful of God. Not terrified of him. For he is not a sinner. He will keep his word and he will keep his word to his mercy and everything we've said about him is true, but be properly reverent and have awe before this one who will at the final day, put all sin down according to perfect knowledge and perfect judgment. And he does see all inside and out, even if he will call Jesus guilty and you justified on that day. It is not because he's somehow forgotten, even if he does not hold it over us. We call on him as father. We call on him as judge. And the two are not in contradiction. Crucially, this word of God as judge does not undermine our freedom to come to him apart from guilt. We do not obey from guilt or shame. For watch. You were ransomed from your futile ways. He's the great redeemer. He redeems classic cars. He's the restoration man. He's the one who is gathering to himself more than 170 classic cars. He is gathering to himself a multitude of people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And he is beautifying them for his worship that they might worship him in the splendor of holiness and here we are not holy in ourselves obedient to whatever extent by the grace of God but worshiping God in the splendor of his holiness and to the extent that we're thinking on him and looking to him and purified in our conduct and thought our holiness is a splendorous praise back to him a reflection of his goodness to us and his character God's redemption comes with a great price. The precious blood of Christ. I don't know what that gentleman in London paid for those cars or maybe he stole them all. Not sure how they got there. But whatever cost he paid or whatever cost he planned to sell them once restored, whatever cost you've paid for anything in your life, your life was purchased with a precious, more costly gift. And that is that of the blood of the lamb. Jesus was slain for you, unblemished, without spot, perfect. And so your price for your life is completely and perfectly paid. A great price was paid for you. So be holy as God is holy. And it is part of his great plan for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you. God has set his affection and his attention and his plans in Christ on you and on us. We are not an afterthought. Our thoughts, many of them are sinful, his thoughts utterly pure, and somehow by His grace set on us. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you and we praise you as the great restorer of fallen, wicked, Righteousness suppressing, God ignoring sinners. We are not here this morning because we are holy and proud of it, but because we have been captivated by a vision of your holiness and because that holiness is paired with grace, we have hope. And so we have and we do now in song set our hope on the grace that is to be ours at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would answer the the conviction of this sermon and the heart of our prayer this morning and that you would make us more holy, that you would by your spirit help us to set our hope fully on Christ that we might not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance to return to those futile ways inherited by our forefathers. No, we thank you, Father, that we have a new way, part of your great plan. And we give you praise that you have purchased us for it by the precious blood of your son. In him, we place our hope today in Christ's name. Amen.